Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm your host, Abby Martin. This week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared victory after a close re-election race, cementing his right-wing Likud party in power for another term. Right before the election, Netanyahu reinforced his rejection of Palestinian statehood, vowed to continue building settlements, and doubled down on his decade-long fear-mongering campaign against Iran. So what will another term of Bibi mean for occupied Palestine? Joining me now to put his win into context is Rania Kalik, journalist with the Electronic Intifada. Rania, thank you so much for coming on today. Can you start by talking about the Likud party's platform and what other political forces comprise the Israeli Knesset right now? Thanks for having me on, Abby. Um, so yeah, Benjamin Netanyahu just won, um, I guess, another term as prime minister uh, in elections that he forced. Um, and he won by uh, basically race baiting in a very George Wallace-esque kind of way. Um, you might have heard, you know, during on, on the day of Israeli elections, he came out, you know, on his Facebook page and like put out a video basically saying Israeli, you know, Israeli, you know, appealing to Israeli Jewish photo, voters um, on the right saying Arabs are coming out in droves. And, um, and so you need to come before, you know, this destroys the right wing. Um, destroys Likud. And so that's, you know, that it worked. Um, and I think that was a very calculate, calculated move. Um, but it also outraged the world. Um, a couple of days before that, he basically said uh, that he does not support, you know, a Palestinian state ever coming into being. And that also shocked the world. And so interestingly enough, I'm actually really happy he won. Um, this is part of Israel's trajectory is turning further and further to the right. And it's happened again. I mean, this is a very, very right wing government. He's going to put together a very, very right wing coalition that probably won't even have like a liberal Zionist in it. Um, and by liberal Zionist, I mean, in, Israel, in the Israeli context, that basically just means that somebody who's less nationalistic than Bibi Netanyahu. Um, so it's, you know, there's not much of a difference between liberal Zionists and the sort of right wing Zionists that control Israel, like Benjamin Netanyahu and Likud, um, other than the fact that liberal, that the liberal Zionists do a better job of um, keeping up the charade of a peace process, um, of telling the world one thing while they're doing another thing. So they still build settlements, right? They still bomb Gaza, you know, Operation Cast Lead uh, that killed um, like 1,400 Palestinians in Gaza in 2008-2009. That was under a quote-unquote liberal Zionist um administration. Uh, so there's not much of a difference except that liberal Zionists are just better diplomats. They're better at um, at telling the world that they've supported a two-state solution while destroying Palestine. So now we have somebody in power again who is very honest about what he wants. He's very honest about his racism. He tells the world, you know, he basically lifts the mask off of what Israel is. Um, and it's very, very ugly. And so that's why you see after his election, uh, Democrats, especially Democrats in power, like in the Obama administration, freaking out because now they have to deal with an Israeli leadership um, that is against the, you know, the bullshit peace process that's been going on for decades now and has basically just a cover for continuing to take Palestinian land and erase Palestine. Um, and, you know, they can't defend that anymore. You can't defend it when you have somebody fear-mongering about Arabs voting <laughs> and somebody saying they don't want a Palestinian state. And to be clear, like I think the two-state solution is BS. Like it's it's dead, it's been dead. I don't support that at all. I think it's like a very segregationist policy. Um and 
you know, in, in the long run, I think the answer is, you know, one state with democratic rights for all. And I think that's where the situation is heading. And um, I think Benjamin Netanyahu is sort of the best advocate for that because he's pushing it along faster than it otherwise would go. Um, so, yeah, he's unmasking what Zionism really is. But, you know, weeks ago, we saw these huge anti-Netanyahu protests in Israel. I mean, it seemed like even Israelis didn't want to endorse such racist vitriol. Why do you think he actually won? There is anti-Netanyahu sentiment in Israel, but it's not because he's racist. It's not an anti-racist sentiment. Um, there are liberal Zionists in Israel who just understand that Benjamin Netanyahu, this is a very small, I think a small segment of Israeli society, they understand that Benjamin Netanyahu is bad for Zionism, is bad for the lifespan of Zionism. He basically cuts it short because, you know, it's it's harder for the international community to support somebody who behaves the way he does, who's basically openly an apartheid enforcer. Um, but a lot of the anti-Netanyahu sentiment has to do with just he's not, not like, you know, he's like uh, he's his wife is unlikable. A lot of it has to do with his wife. There's a lot of hatred towards his wife. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, sort of exposés um, on former maids of hers, like Ethiopian maids. Um, who I say they were treated awfully by her. I mean, she doesn't treat her maids well. She's, she, they, I mean, they spend, right. They spend like their, they spend money, you know, I think they spend like government money on like wine and ice cream or something. Um, so this is what upsets people. And also there is like Israel, we just learned, uh, is one of the most unequal societies in the quote unquote civilized world, or in, you know, in the developed world. Um, and so there are sort of pocketbook issues. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu isn't just a neo, I mean, he's like a neocon and that, that goes into like economic thinking too. Um, and so there's like austerity involved in policies and, and so in privatization and things like this. And so that's sort of where some of that anti Netanyahu sentiment comes from, but it's certainly not, it has nothing to do with his treatment of Arabs, treatment of Palestinians. Um, so yeah, it's very important to like understand the difference between that because that's sort of the way it gets spun sometimes is that there is a part of Israeli Jewish society that is like very, anti-Netanyahu because they're just not right wing. And when it comes to Palestinians, it's just not the case. And this is another really interesting facet that I think actually gets to the heart of, of Israel. Um, 90% of his reelection fund came from America, half of which was paid for by only three families. I mean, talk about the significance of this. Well, uh, I think, I think Sheldon Adelson, right. was probably one of Sheldon Adelson is like the casino billionaire magnate. Um, who uh, funds the right wing of the Republican Party <laughs> um, and also funds Netanyahu. He funds a newspaper in Israel that is like just pure, you know, pro Netanyahu. And he gives it away and they give it away for free. Um, I think that is pretty significant that it's like you have America, Americans who are so invested in Israel that they're, you know, spending all this money to influence elections. And I also kind of think it's significant that on the other end of things, there was an American effort, well, by Americans, like certain consultants um, who were involved in trying to get the liberal Zionist, this, you know, more liberal Zionist union uh, party elected because they were anti-Netanyahu because he's bad for Zionism, right? Um, so yeah, I do think that's, a, that's, that's pretty significant. And that story kind of got like played up by the right wing in this country. Like, oh my God, you know, a former consultant for the Obama administration is helping get rid of Bibi in Israel, right? Um, but I, you know, so that kind of made it not an interesting story in general. Um, but I do think that that's kind of, you know, an important thing. I, I think that what you see is sort of like the fight within Zionism in the U.S. playing out by wealthy people here, playing out in Israel. Um, and there is like sort of right-wing, very, very wealthy right-wing Zionists in this country 
that support um, a greater Israel, like people like Sheldon Adelson. I mean, Sheldon Adelson himself said he doesn't like, what's the big deal if Israel's not a democracy? I mean, he's, he said that. Um, he's also said that he thinks Israel should build, build walls all around it and, and, you know, be this exclusivist state. I mean, he's very, you know, his rhetoric is kind of like Benjamin Netanyahu's rhetoric. It's very honest. It's very honest about the racism and what you, you know, he wants Israel to be. And so there are people here trying to shape that. I always said that about the Republicans, too. It's I'd almost rather have had Romney and McCain win because at least they're unabashedly racist, very xenophobic, very ethnocentric and also just so militaristic that it's like, all right, let's just see it for what it is so we can then organize against this force instead of this charade. Um, And of course, weeks ago, talking about political theater, I mean, there's this controversy of Netanyahu coming overstepping Obama to come speak at Congress. Then the Tom Cotton letter, (laughs) who, I mean, seriously, he looks like, uh, it looks like just like another Paul Ryan, like cut off the old block. I was like, why do all these people look like, um, uh, you know, to Iran undermining the diplomatic negotiations? What do you think about this whole rift within the U.S. establishment? I know that you're just speaking on that, but when it comes to Israeli policy, is it just political theater? I think that uh, with leaders like Netanyahu, he's a very, very de- divisive person. Like wherever he goes, he's just very divisive. And he's aligned himself because of his rhetoric and policies with the right wing wherever he goes. So in Europe, it's with these sort of right wing, um, formerly like pro-Nazi elements, like in places like France with Marine Le Pen and like the their nationalist party there. Um, and then in America, I mean, he's really like, He's really just like a conservative. He's very he's like a tea partier in a lot of ways. Um, And so that's who he, you know, appeals to the most. And that's who his allies are in this country. And I think that 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 is incredibly significant because, you know, even though it's happening very, very slowly, there are these cracks forming within within the you know American establishment with the way Israel is supported, because Israel has become this partisan issue. It's it's becoming especially at the grassroots level. It's a very partisan issue. And we're seeing you know, waning support for Israel from Democrats, like the Democratic base. Um, And that's not being necessarily reflected in the leadership yet. But in terms of the rhetoric, it's starting to be, especially with Netanyahu coming here and doing what he did with the speech. I mean, that was incredible. It's like you have a foreign leader being invited by the opposition in the United States, the country that like literally Israel's a welfare state of the United States. <laughs> and you have him coming invited by the opposition to come and try and undermine the foreign policy of the sitting president of the state that like literally supports Israel's survival as, you know, this racist apartheid state that it is. And so that's like, un, you know, that's kind of unheard of that. I don't think that's happened. I think that's sort of a, you know, a first. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that's why Benjamin Netanyahu is really, I think, He's sort of the best thing for those of us who want to see an end to this disgusting racist system because he's pushing it along in this way where he's really causing this rift within support for Israel. And I think what we're going to see, especially we already are starting to see it at the grassroots level. And I think eventually um, what we're going to see is it's going to become a culture wars kind of issue, the way kind of, you know, like abortion is right, Um, where Israel becomes something that Republicans are like pro-Israel. Yeah. And I don't know if Democrats are necessarily going to be like boo. But at the same time, it's just going to be one of those issues that, you know, is used like to campaign on by people on the right. And it's going to turn Democrats off. And I I think you kind of see that reflected as well. And there's like all these sort of right wing Tea Partier esque um, crazy anti-Islam rallies that pop up in places like Texas and Oklahoma. And one thing you always see at these rallies is like Israeli flags 
like being waved by by anti-Islam protesters next to American flags, which is so weird. It's like it's become this symbol of hatred uh, for for Muslims or for others in this country. And that's what I mean by it's like being reflected at the grassroots level in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's I think that's going to continue to get worse and it's bad for Zionism. So it's good. (laughs) <laughs> that is so disturbing. Yeah, it reminds me of um, when Bush was trying to get into Iraq and the French leader was like, you know, we, we, we called him Freedom Fries because they didn't want to go in with us. The Coalition of the Willing we were dumping French wine down the drain. It would be like the Democratic opposition inviting him to come and like speak to Congress and undermine Bush. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened? They would have probably been just offed. <laughs> like, I mean, someone whoever invited him would have probably just, yeah died in a plane crash. But, you know, when it comes to this rhetoric, it really does shift it so much to the right, though, just like the entire U.S. political establishment. I mean, when it comes to Israel, of course, the U.S. under Obama, as much as Obama seems like he's being, you know, overstepped with the Republicans, and and he is in a really unprecedented way. But then again, the U.S. still continues to support a policy of apartheid, mass murder, and its annual allotment of military aid to Israel to the tune of over $3 billion dollars. So, Rania, when we hear that the White House is, quote, deeply concerned, right, just like they're deeply concerned about Venezuela, about Netanyahu's anti-Arab rhetoric, I mean, what does that even mean? So the White House is deeply concerned about um, that's like that's its like signature phrase, right? Like it's like when it gives Israel its like annual, you know, billions of dollars in military aid, it probably like has a disclaimer of like, we're deeply concerned. But here you go. Um, But it means nothing. I mean, we shouldn't be like wooed by this rhetoric. I mean, it's it's kind of positive, I guess. But again, it's only rhetoric. I mean, until until the U.S. or whoever's in power, until Obama stops signing those checks, until he makes a legitimate, you know, even a threat of something, of doing something to, like, deter Israel from being the way it is, um, nothing's going to change. And so all this rhetoric, I mean, it's just lip service. It means nothing until actual action happens. And that's why it's important not to get, you know, not to start to think that, oh, it's going to change. Like, it's still, this is still, the only way that things are going to change is, is pushing people from the bottom, right? Is like the grassroots pushing people with BDS. I mean, that's still the only, you know, the only substantial thing that we can do um, in this country, I believe, is, you know, work inter- you know work for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel and to really intensify that. Um, because even though I'm saying like, yay, it's yay, yay. Yes, it's great that, it's great that Netanyahu won. It's good, it's, you know, it's good for our cause. At the same time, we can't rely on that because- it's also very dangerous. Um, it's dangerous because no matter who's in power in Israel, like Gaza is going to get bombed again. And it's going to, exactly. And every Gaza conflict seems to intensify from the last in a really dramatic way, um, like what we just saw last summer. And that's going to continue. I mean, it, it, and it's probably going to happen sooner than like later. Usually it's every couple of years. I mean, I could see Gaza probably being bombed, you know, at some point in a few months, maybe next year. I don't know. But Gaza is like miserable right now. It's basically just like a cage. Um, that's being de-developed to the point of, you know, people are smuggling themselves out and getting on boats where they're dying to try and get out of Gaza. And that's kind of never happened before. That's new. So the desperation has reached new levels. And at this point, you know, it's Israel, it's belligerence. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, It's going to keep killing Palestinians um, at probably, you know, greater numbers. It's going to keep stealing Palestinian land and erasing whatever is left of Palestine. Um, and corralling Palestinians into these little ghettos where they're caged, you know, behind walls. And that's in the West Bank as well. That's going to continue to happen. So the question really is, 
Um, how many more Palestinians does Israel get to kill um, and dispossess and push out before the international community says enough? And so that's where BDS comes in. That's where outside pressure, or well, I'm sorry, like pressure from the grassroots comes. And so that's where any kind of change that's going to take place is going to happen. We cannot depend on Obama's rhetoric or these like really empty threats um, that, you know, have never done anything. Well, we're, what we're going to see is we're going to see that the Obama administration and we're going to see European um, leaders around the world try and salvage the two-state solution and try and salvage this this like bullshit of a peace process that doesn't actually do anything. Yeah. And, and as far as we know, I mean, the rhetoric might be changing because of the enormous pressure from the international community and, and the BDS and all the grassroots activists here, because for the first time, Israel's no longer able to control the narrative with social media. We're no longer just seeing Netanyahu holding up cartoons of human shields. We're actually seeing dead bodies with no proof of these claims whatsoever. And, you know, right now, um, according to UN, and this is if, if, if trucks are able to get in on a daily basis, a hundred years to rebuild, I mean, they don't have any building materials. So it's a complete and utter disaster. An open air prison, I think Banksy called it, it it's saying too much because prisons don't have their electricity and water just turned off at random. But let's talk about, um, just for people who may not understand the complexities of the situation, because I still get a lot of people just, you know, it, it is hard to dig into the history of, of this issue quickly debunk the notion that Israel is a democracy in which Arabs have equal rights. <laughs> well, Israel is the only democracy in the world. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, there. so I guess the way to say it is like there's different sections. I guess if we talk about historic Palestine, right, or what, you know, Zionists think of as greater Israel, um, we're talking about an area where part of its occupied territory and that's like the West Bank and Gaza and the people that live the Palestinians I should say that live there um they don't get to vote for the regime that controls them there's like 2.5 million Palestinians in the West Bank I think and there's another like 1.8 billion or did I just say billion I meant million if I said billion million (laughs) Palestinians in Gaza um and they are confined to these areas they don't have any freedom they have very little freedom of movement um especially in the West Bank and Gaza, like they can at least move freely within Gaza and the West Bank. There's settlements that encroach on Palestinian land and that really like split Palestinians, uh, Palestinian towns from one another. And so they like their freedom of movement is very, very limited. Um, and so in these areas, Palestinians, they have no control over their own lives. Israel controls everything, um, controls what goes in, what goes out, um, you know, especially, I mean, in Gaza, like it controls the calories. <laughs> um, this is like a mathematical formula it's come up with. So in these areas, you have all these people who are completely disenfranchised, who have no voting rights. They don't get to vote. They didn't get to vote in the last election for the regime that controls their daily lives. Then you have the situation within the Green Line, um, which is like Israel proper, where it's considered by the international community to be legitimately, you know, Israeli territory, if you will. Um, and in this area, you have... No, well, Jerusalem, there's West, you know, half of Jerusalem, West Jerusalem is considered the Israeli part, the Jewish part of Jerusalem. That's, I mean, all of this is ethnically cleansed territory. Let's be clear here. Um, You know, even what's considered legitimate Israel was built on top of like hundreds and hundreds of destroyed Palestinian villages where people were forced out of their homes. There were massacres that took place in 1948 and then subsequent um, people, people being ethnically cleansed after that and not being allowed to return. That's why you have Palestinian refugees just like all around the Middle East in refugee camps till this day. Um, but those who survived that ethnic cleansing and still are there are Palestinian citizens of Israel and they make up about 20%. Air, um, Palestinian citizens of Israel make up about, about 20% of Israeli, of the Israeli population. And they 
technically they do have voting rights. Now there's also a sort of system of apartheid there as well, where there's um, discriminate. I mean, there's like something like 50, at least 50 laws that explicitly like discriminate against um, non-Jewish citizens. Uh, Like they can't live in certain places (laughs) kinds of things. Like they, they can't get building permits um, to like build, you know, to like extend their homes, expand their homes. Um, you know, even in the Negev, um, area, it's like Southern Israel. Uh, there are Palestinian communities living in unrecognized villages. They're unrecognized, even though a lot of them have been there since that, you know, pre before Israel was established as a state. Um, and they're constantly like, you know, they're not allowed to build their, they basically are, they live in like sort of slums. And um, a lot of those villages, there's like a what's called the Prower Plan that Israel is trying to resurrect to to basically ethnically cleanse, um, a, you know, tens of thousands of these people and put them into reservation style towns um, so that they can, you know, build up a Jewish, you know, build up like sort of like a Jewish only area here. Um, so the, there's like a system of discrimination and apartheid that makes Palestinian citizens inside Israel second class citizens, but they do technically have voting rights, which is why, you know, Netanyahu used this as a way to say, you know, to fear monger during his campaign. Um, so yeah, it's Israel is not a democracy. <laughs> it's still somewhat of a democracy for Jews. Um, it's like a Jewish only democracy, but even then, I mean, like if you're a leftist Jew, there aren't very many of them, but if you are in Israel, I mean, leftist has become a slur. Um, which is kind of like a signature slur for fascist leaning societies. Um, and that's where Israel's sort of like headed down towards a road to fascism. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not a democracy. (laughs) Straight up, straight up. Well, I think it's so, I mean, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic where you have Netanyahu just gallivanting around the globe in the wake of every tragedy. Charlie Abdo had nothing to do about Israelis or Jewish people, you know, in the initial massacre that happened but of course you have Netanyahu saying come to Israel all Jews in France come to Israel as if no one lives there as if you're not going to unseat hundreds of people to like move in all the Jews around the world to live there it's just outrageous okay let's talk about Mexico because you just took another trip um to another militarized border region uh talk about what that experience was like and how the Mexico border and just the entire um region relates to Palestine Okay, so this is my first trip to the U.S.-Mexico border, and I um, it was from you know I was in Arizona, so I saw the Arizona part of the U.S.-Mexico border, um, and I should say it wasn't like what I thought it would be because you know when you hear about the border, they make it sound like it's this dangerous terrain where like you know there's like drug cartels just like running up and down the border, you know the border wall with machine guns, you know or something, um, but it's not that. That's not that way at all. There is a massive wall. It's a really, really ugly wall um, at the border. It's like the iron wall, if you will, of the U.S.-Mexico border. And it just like bisects towns. Like there's, I, I you know, I went to this one. I went to, for, I was in Nogales, um, Arizona, which is this border town. And it's like part of it is in Arizona. And then there's Nogales, Mexico. And this wall just, I mean, it's like an arbitrary borderline, right? That was drawn, I guess, by like American colonialists. Um, and it just completely bisects this road. It's like, imagine just somebody like coming to your neighborhood 
And to your like, it kind of is like a suburban area. It's sort of suburban looking. And just like, imagine someone coming to your neighborhood and just building a wall in the middle of your street, like in front of your house. And so your neighbor is on the other side of the wall. Well, this is like an indigenous Mexican community, basically, that lives here. And so it's actually split families. So there's some people who live, you know, there's families where part of them live on the Arizona side. So they're American citizens and others live on the Mexican side. So actually every Sunday, um, people will come in because the, the U.S.-Mexico border wall, it's like it's columns. Um, so there's spaces in between each column. So you can see, you know, into the other side. You can see people on the other side. It's kind of like almost like prison bars, but thicker. Um, so people will come and meet each other at the wall. Um, because, I mean, if you are to cross the border, you know, Americans can cross into Mexico pretty easily, but you like have to go through the checkpoint and there's like, you know, specific entry points and it's kind of like a pain. Um so yeah, it was just really, really bizarre. Just an unnatural, disgusting wall that's actually hurting like the ecosystem as well, um, is what I was told. Um, because you know it's like a habitat. You know, like it's it's messing with that as well because you've got this wall and animals can't get across it. Uh, so yeah, it's very, very bizarre. Um, but also, you know, there's that's like the first what they call like the first layer. So the border secu- border like control basically has this. It's this like this this method set up where you've got the wall and let me be clear the wall the way it functions it actually doesn't necessarily it's very easy to you could climb the wall very easily it doesn't necessarily keep people out as much as it funnels them into different areas right they're forcing them to cross into different areas and the wall is built in such a way and dhs and the border patrol it's very they're very explicit about this and like their plans that are written up for this it's built in such a way to funnel people into the most dangerous terrain possible so that when people who are so desperate, they're trying to like get away from whatever it is they're running from, whether it's like their economic refugees or they're fleeing violence, which is the case with a lot of people coming from Central America or that came from Central America last year. Um, they are being funneled into like re- into desert terrain where it takes days to cross um, and people die of thirst. And the Border Patrol knows this. That's, that's, they, they consider it a form of deterrence to like force people to, and family. This is families we're talking about. We're forcing families to cross into this terrain where people die. And we don't even know how many people have died because bone, like remains are just found randomly. Um, but yeah, it's it, I mean, these are kind of like killing fields um, or death fields. But like people just die silently and no one really talks about this or is even really aware that this is happening. So that's kind of the way the wall functions. But there's also a second layer to keep people out. And that's what is they call it like a virtual fence. Um, And it's a series of towers of like surveillance towers. And these towers are um, made by um, Elbit Systems, which is a like big it's Israel's biggest military uh, technology firm. Um, And Elbit Systems was contracted by DHS like last year, actually around this time. They were given like a $145 million contract or something to build these towers. So these towers just keep popping up and they're made up of technology that Elbit system has, has basically tested and refined on Palestinians. It's this tech. This is the same technology that is used to construct and maintain the apartheid wall that um, snakes through, you know, the West bank. Um, and so this is something that we're seeing happen a lot is Israeli technology firms um, using a, like using equipment and, hardware that has been tested on Palestinians are being contracted to do this kind of stuff at borders around the world, not just in the U S. Um, and so, and this is, this is like, I mean, there's a reason for this. Israel is like, it basically uses Palestine as a laboratory to, um, test and perfect methods and weapons of domination and control. And then it exports those weapons and methods to other parts of the world for profit. 
So, I mean, that's not the reason that Palestinians are oppressed. There's, you know, but it's just kind of like a symptom and um, a kickback, if you will. For And then the thing is, Israel, like, there's actually, like, this massive... Um, this like massive research facility um, and, like uh, that function that like operates out of um, the University of Arizona uh, that creates sort of homeland technology or homeland security technology. And they like created a partnership um, with this other group and they, they formed, they like launched this program called global exchange to figure out, cause you know, now the border security apparatus has opened up to foreign markets and that's why, you know, Israeli companies have been able to come in and get these contracts, but they're actually trying to attract Israeli companies because they have identified Israel as the place that has the highest concentration of homeland technology firms. And the reason for that is because Israel's entire being is about controlling this population that they don't want, this population whose land they're trying to steal. And so that like, it's like literally, it's like an engine for repression technology because of this. So it's like the go-to place. I mean, when you can put on your products, whether they're drones um, yeah, when you can put on your products, whether they're drones or whether it's like surveillance technology, that it's battle tested or combat proven, which is how Israeli products are advertised. It's like the seal of approval in the military, like in, in sort of like the international arms trade. So Israel is able to do that. And because of that, they're sort of the experts of this. And so, you know, this technology is being used to fortify the outer borders of Europe to keep out migrants from, you know, Africa and mostly North Africa and Middle Eastern countries who are desperately fleeing like violence that European countries in the U.S. are totally implicated in. Um, and you see it happening here at our border to keep out people who are fleeing violence and, um, you know, economic violence as well that is caused by U.S. policy, like directly caused by U.S. policy. So in a way, like Israel has become, you know, this sort of like production factory for products that, you know, are, are sustaining racism and inequality around the world. Yeah. And also the training of of police you know i mean when when occupy oakland went down um the the policemen were so militarized and insane and then i found out of course that they had trained next to bahrain and, and the idf and i was just like okay so they're also exporting tactics right tactics of control so here's here's my question i know that you and i both agree on this but i, I think it's important to muse about not just muse i mean this is the future of palestine we're talking about it's it's crucial and it's really interesting to me that so many people including very prominent pro-palestinian scholars still call for the two-state solution um, as the only way for peace in the region. Why is a one-state solution really the only avenue um, toward peace, and how can that be achieved given the current political climate? So the reason that a two-state solution is so appealing um, is because it basically it basically like reinforces the idea that Israel should be a Jewish state. There should be some sort of Jewish state. And so that's like people who say this will say, well, two states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. But the problem with that is it doesn't address the root cause of the conflict. And the root cause of the conflict is that Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their land. And that's inside present day Israel, not just the occupied territories or what's left of them, what's left of Palestine. And so there's all these refugees that are, like I said, are scattered around in refugee camps around the Middle East generations later. I mean, there's no other situation that even resembles this where refugees like generations of refugees or people are still refugees and stateless. And so you can't fix the issue. You can't fix the problem unless you address that. Um, and, you know, having a Jewish state in an area of the world that is historically not predominantly Jewish is never, it's never going to work. Um, and it's always going to like rely on oppressing the non-Jewish minority, um, whether that be Palestinians, indigenous Palestinians, 
were African asylum seekers who are basically like, you know, living outdoors, aren't allowed to work, are, um, and these are people like who are fleeing genocide in places like Eritrea and Sudan. Um, and they're, they're called infiltrators and they're considered like Palestinians, a demographic threat to the Jewish majority that, so like this kind of rhetoric, this kind of, this is always going to be a problem as long as there exists any state that defines itself by ethno-religious like identification. Um, so that's, I mean, that's why this two state idea is just, it's, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to work. And that's, but that's why people push for it. They push for it. Even liberal Zionists who like, like multiculturalism in the u.s who live in the u.s who enjoy like usually they're these like privileged liberal zionist jews like enjoy living in this multicultural place because they have rights here but then at the same time they support this like jewish ethnocracy abroad and you know just just in case you know as like a just in case spare state um and it's it's absolutely ridiculous um but so yeah i think also like aside from that a two-state solution is not realistic anymore like even even if at one point it was it's no longer realistic i mean what are you going to make a state of palestine you just have a bunch of different like bantu stand style like ghettos um there's no way to really connect them they're bisected by like settlements and walls um and then gaza like it's like what kind of state is that and israel and an and Israeli state that is dedicated to um, consolidating its Jewish majority as Israel is and as it will always be if it continues to be this supposedly, you know, majority Jewish state and has to maintain that um, is never going to allow this Palestinian, this, this imaginary Palestinian state to be a functioning state. It's never going to let it have a military. You know, when Israelis talk about when Israeli leaders talk about two states, they talk about a demilitarized Palestine. Like, so it's just it's like you're talking about an you know you're talking about a bunch of like not you know a bunch of non connected like ghettos being formed into it. It's just not going to happen. It's not realistic. So this is why we have to start considering what is the only realistic alternative, and one that is at least, like at least humane, and that is a one state like one state of Israel Palestine, whatever you want to call it where everybody gets equal rights. I mean, if we can have that in America, even in its messed up, like fucked up form that we have it in, why can't we have that in Israel-Palestine? Um, and, you know, it's like as long as we we allow this, this two-state rhetoric to continue and as long as we continue to support this facade of two states, all we're doing is supporting this, like, you know, bullshit peace process, like I mentioned earlier, that allows Israel to, like, say one thing while it continues to consolidate its rule um, over Palestinian land. Right, and this will only come, the change will only come through grassroots efforts like boycott, divestment, sanctions, and no one's saying sanction Israel to starve Israeli citizens. It's to, it's to isolate Israel to make people actually be forced to act um, once the international community really steps up to the plate, just like we saw in South Africa. That's really the only way that change and lasting peace will come in the region. Thank you so much, Rania Kalik, at Rania Kalik on Twitter. Everyone check out Dispatches from the Underclass and also the Electronic Intifada for her excellent journalism. Thanks so much for joining me, Rania. Thank you.